0: Greetings, friends. This is Dr. Mark Sharona, and I want to welcome you to The Edge Podcast, where all things theological, psychological, spiritual, and cultural will be explored so that you and I might understand the times and know what to do about them. Enjoy. Delighted today to have Pastor Dwight McKissick with us from Arlington, Texas, someone that I have admired at a distance for a long time and have devoured what he wrote back in 1990 on Beyond Roots and then his more recent works. But I I, I wanted to reach out to him in this season and just have him share his insights on where we are, where we would like to see the church go in the area of addressing the ongoing problem of America's original sin. And how does that relate to the body of Christ in particular? So Pastor Dwight, in my world, based on your influence and how many pastors look to you, we'd call you a bishop in my world, but, but I'll be respectful of your tradition and, and acknowledge you as a pastor. But you are a father in the faith, and it's just an honor to be face-to-face with you.
1: Well, thank you, Bishop Mark Sharona, just about everything you said about me could, I could sincerely and honestly say about you and almost preaching myself that I'm sitting here having a conversation with you, knowing uh, the mark you've made for the gospel of Jesus Christ across different denominations and camps and across this nation and in other parts of the world. And, Saturday in audiences once for sure, but I think maybe in Tulsa and, and Fort Worth where you were ministering uh, mightily and uh, read your books and heard your name just in so many circles. So it has been a, just an honor when I discovered uh, through social media, you maybe recognize my name as well. And, and the potential of sitting here today has had me excited and somewhat uh uh, a little bit nervous just to know that I am going to be in dialogue with uh, a man of your giftedness, uh, integrity, scholarship, and what do I have to offer Bishop Firona? What do, what can I say of any uh, worth of value to his, his fellowship? But nevertheless, I am uh, uh, glad to be here with you at this very hour. Thank you, sir.
0: Well, pastor, what what I remember back in the late 80s, early 90s, when we were beginning to address in, in our tribes, the desperate need for recognizing the voice of the black community and its contribution to both American history, and in particular, the move of God and the church in its greatest tradition in terms of preaching in terms of teaching in terms of a sense of community Um, and your voice was one of those voices that was a go-to voice for us back in the days of cassette tapes when dinosaurs roamed the earth and long before there were cell phones but you wrote a book called beyond roots and you talked in there about the Sons of Ham. And for many of us who would gloss over those texts and never bother to think through them, you invited us to take a journey and say, look at what you're missing here. So if 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 you would feel free enough just to give us a little taste of that and then we'll go from there to where you see things today, but just, just talk out of that and why that was so significant at that time and maybe why we need to revisit it again in the day in which we live.
1: Thank you, Bishop Sharona, for asking that question. I think it was 87 when I was preaching through the book of Genesis, starting chapter one, verse one, and my goal was to preach to the very last Uh, chapter. When I arrived at Genesis chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, it was an eye opener for me in many ways. First of all, I guess it it answered an immediate question I had uh, having worked in the prison system in Arkansas. I watched a lot of um, African-American inmates who uh, seemingly committed Christians coming to the Bible studies I was conducting, and the other chaplain, uh, part of the gospel choir that I directed in the prisons. I can play the piano just a little bit, not uh, enough to uh, do what I needed to do in that context. And uh, we'd have lay witness revivals in a Tucker prison, but to watch guys uh, denounce the faith and move to start learning the Arabic alphabet and language and reading the Quran and said that they were moving away from Christ because they said the slave and the slave master can't have the same God they refused to worship a blonde-haired blue-eyed Jesus Uh, they thought there was so much hypocrisy among classical historical Christianity that they could uh, no longer reconcile in their minds uh, being identified uh, with Christ. And they once said to me one day, I will forget if you went home and your wife told you she was pregnant by the, by the Holy Ghost, uh, you, you you slapped her. They were rejecting the fundamentals of the faith. And I, was, I had no answers for them, other than to say that Jesus I accepted, I did not ethnicize him or put a color or race on him. I accepted truth, I accepted love, I accepted grace, I accepted forgiveness. Holy Spirit convicted me of my sins. And I really had no conscious thought about uh, color and the dynamics surrounding color and race when I became a believer and was growing in discipleship and encountering the spirit of, of God. But all of that questions had to do with uh, some racial or color component to the faith for which I had no answers and one by one, I saw not all, but a good number of people who I thought were rooted and grounded in Christ, uh, moved to uh, the nation of Islam version of the Islamic religion. They said the Bible was a white man's book. It was written by the white man for the purpose of idolatizing or controlling the slaves, on and on and on. I felt so inadequate. Uh, But it was during this period, uh, fast forward another, I don't know, five, six, seven years later, I'm now in Texas, I'm trying to build a church from scratch and uh, trying to just make sure that people were biblically literate. Even, you're right, those unpopular passages, those, if I may say those non-sexy passages, like the genealogists uh, 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 that's listed. So in the process of doing that, I discovered that just maybe some of those questions that the prisoners had about were there any blacks in the Bible, I had no answer to that question back then. Um, If I was properly reading and exegeting and understanding just basic geography and basic uh, etymology and uh, some eyewitness testimonies like people like Herodotus, who's considered the father of history, he went to Egypt in 500 BC and described the looks of the Egyptians. I, I, I began to see there is a color component uh, to the Bible. And testimony of scripture, Exodus 12, 38, said they left Egypt, which is an African country, a mixed multitude. Um, and then I looked at there are only five ladies in, mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And four of those ladies' lineage were traced back to Noah's son. Uh, ham, it, it it all the questions I couldn't answer during my four-year pilgrimage as a chaplain intern and as a volunteer president addressing these issues. God began to answer those by studying uh the book of Jesus, Genesis. Even Adam and Eve and how they came into being. Adam made from dirt. That's you and I would be biblical literalists in that sense. We we consider the first 11 chapters of Jesus, I mean of Genesis historical, uh, as opposed to figurative or mythological. We would believe that uh, Nimrod was a historical flesh and blood person, and and along with Adam and Eve and on and on. And um, so I I discovered that, the biblical world, particularly Old Testament world, was primarily composed, comprised of uh, Asian and African people and some Japhetic European uh, involvement as well. So I uh, just unpacked that as it relates, as it interfaced with evangelism, apologetics, defending the faith, um, as it relates to anthropology, just the study of man, knowing. What, uh, the history and the development the involvement of man, and in the process, I wrote that little book as i uh, God was just downloading me so much about that it also answers some age- old questions that would sometimes float around the black community black churches for which we had no answer, such as, were blacks cursed? yeah, by God, I mean i that you know did were, did I complexity come from the mark of Cain? Did our complexion come from the dispersion at the Tower of Babel? And uh, those of us who journeyed below the equator belt that the sun, uh, being exposed to the sun for hundreds of years caused us to be uh, dark. And those who dispersed north uh, in the colder climates that they were already light, but they became lighter. So with Genesis answered all of those uh questions for me because you you couldn't get really good solid answers at least in the churches i was around at at that time in the uh, late 50s 60s 70s and again all those answers was just in unpacking unpacking what you say is uh those portions of the bible sometimes we rush over only thing we heard about ham was a curse but first chronicles 440 says that the the, the people of Ham of old dwelt there in the land of Canaan and uh, where Jerusalem was, and it was a peaceful, quiet land. We heard nothing about, again, the Ruth, Rahab, uh, Sheba, and Tamar, those ladies would all be descendants of Ham and
0: Absolutely.
1: in the genealogy of Jesus. So yeah, so that's how that that, the two motivations for that book was to be able to provide answers to those who were struggling with the Christian faith based on racial issues. And secondly, just in general, to answer the question that is seldom was asked, where did white people come from? But it's been a haunted question of uh, black people, where did black people originate? And Genesis answered all those questions.
0: Well, I can tell you it answered a lot of questions for the guys I hang out with. And, and we probably owe you a tithe check for all the sermons we preached. From, from well, I sure collected two dollars. No. <laughs> Thank
1: you, guys.
0: But, um, but so let's, let's look at then, that was the late 80s, the early 90s. Yes. Fast forward now, we are sitting in our living rooms in the midst of a pandemic, we can't go anywhere and all of us watch on the news as a young man is suffocated to death by a policeman that keeps his knee on his chest. What's what's going on in Pastor Dwight's mind and heart as he's watching that? Well,
1: that incident, along with the pandemic that hit America in a mighty way in March, the George Floyd incident was what, sometime in May, I want to say. Mm -hmm. Um, All of the drama and trauma surrounding the presidential election, and the reason I'm tying all this together, I don't think we could look at what God might be up to uh, separate these events. They all are happening in 20. You are correct. You are correct. And all of these have been major life-changing events. They've altered our way of thinking, our way of behaving, our practices. Uh, They've altered politics. They've just had a phenomenal impact, not only just our nation, and the world. Um, I had a uh, coincidental uh, meeting with Dr. Evans, Tony Evans, uh, a couple of months ago. Just my my grandchild and one of his grandchildren are having a birthday party, and we ended up at the same at the birthday party together. And he said something that I think is is really on target. So, and and here here's what it was: that what we're experiencing, given all of those. Factors I just mentioned the George Floyd combined with the pandemic combined with elect, uh, election trauma and, and other matters, the economy that sort of grew out of the pandemic, that condition. We're looking at a disruption. It's obviously a disruption. Churches are disrupted. I mean, everything is disrupted now, but we're looking at a disruption that's leading to a divine reset. All right. God is resetting things, God is, (laughs) this is a game changer. And the question is though, what is the reset? You can see the disruption in the natural. You don't need any divine insight to see the disruption. Uh, The big question now is though, what what will the reset look like? is, Is he shuffling things around? Will we, those of us who've longed for and prayed for, churches to reflect the kingdom of god to reflect the ethnicities of heaven every kindred tongue tribe and nation who covered in the blood and who Mm -hmm. named the name jesus christ and the one word revelation 19 says in heaven we all say hallelujah and that's as you know is a common language around the globe it translates the same in french and german African language on and on and on that um, will we now see the races particularly in the south but around the nation will come will that reset now be interracial churches i don't know that for certain uh john 17 21 that prayer jesus prayed about unity uh he, he prayed that his disciples the future and he says and those to come future believers that they will be one. Now, but listen to why. He says, so that the world may know that you have sent me. He said, they will not have faith in the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world, unless they see oneness among his followers. And in the United States of America, the world has never seen oneness in what this country came into being 1776. So we're looking at what, 200 plus years later and America has never seen oneness in a substantial systemic, significant way, structural way among the people who name the name Christ. And Jesus said that would be a hindrance to evangelism if they don't see that wonder. So ah, I'm praying and believing just maybe color will not drive where we attend church in the future. It might be a total rearrangement, but where the spirit of the Lord is, liberty. may be where people are attracted to and, they, and color will not drive that. that. That might be a I pray that that's part of the reset. The reset could be, I, I don't know if I'm going way away from your question
0: You're fine. You're fine, go, uh, just keep
1: going. The reset could be, rather than just talking evangelism and discipleship and prayer, which most of us do, a whole lot more talk about those three things than we sometimes in a disciplined, consistent, uh, qualitative way actually Practice those disciplines. Our homes now have become houses of worship, and houses of prayer, maybe more so than they were before the pandemic. I know people who shower and dress, prepare for church in their homes the same way they would on Sunday morning. That uh, Jesus is taking a sin, a of for place a centerpiece place in our homes in some ways maybe he did not have prior to the pandemic my wife was praying with seven ladies on a saturday and all of a sudden 200 ladies wanted to pray after the pandemic hit so they got a lot more people on zoom calls praying than they would have to meet with a small group of ladies and i could repeat that over and over with many ministries uh, not only within my congregation, but other congregations. I'm hearing there's an intensity, there's a hunger, uh, there's a consistency in uh, growth and seeking God that you could almost quantify, measure in ways you couldn't prior to the pandemic. So disciple-making. we disciple-making. We tend to want large groups. We go after the 1,200, but Jesus went after the 12. We go after the 12,000. We, and we have not, matter of fact, we sometimes frown on smaller congregations and smaller groups, but Jesus understood the value and the power of small groups. And even in the educational system, I tell you, the the less populated the classroom is, the higher the quality of the education and the teaching is. We may, I've had... Uh, many different preachers of different camps to preach at our church because I believe the kingdom of God is large. One day, I won't call this day, a, a, a prominent uh, charismatic preacher, has powerful message, powerful uh, teaching, but we had an eight o'clock service, 11 o'clock service, and I told him at the eight o'clock service, we start Sunday school promptly at 945, and the service had to really need to be over about 930, no later than 940. God was using it, but in the middle of his message, he announced basically he heard my request, but he was just gonna uh, preach, preach, preach and ignore. And I told him in the the late service, uh, you know, the the time limitations out there. Now here's my point, we, we, Sunday school is part of our core values at our church and small, we believe small group Bible study, that sometimes deals with those non-juicy passages. Uh, Sunday school sometimes forced you to learn parts of the Bible you wouldn't ordinarily learn on your own or hear from a pulpit. And we believe a whole counsel of God is important and necessary. I, you know, we might not like broccoli and Brussels sprouts, uh, maybe not, but we, we all know we, to be healthy, you got to eat some stuff you don't like at times. And same way when it comes to the Bible, <laughs> we, we got to study those passages and see what God wants us to know and practice out of even those areas of scripture that's just not all that appealing to us. that's some that's something some nutrients that a God wants us to have. and my, and if if I'm making a point, it's this, I think small group discipleship with Bible study will be more important to about the reset in the future than it has been in the past because I think spiritual growth and accountability, and if I want to know Mark jerona's heart, he'd get to know my heart. If I want to genuinely care beyond the superficial about his family and ministry. Uh, just before I came in here today, I was, uh, I had a, just a tearful, tears of joy. My daughters, my adult daughters assisted on meeting with me today and showing me something. And I told them I was all excited about it and, kind of had butterflies about being with you today, but they said, but well, dad, you got to see this. And I'm thinking, but it was just before this and I'm kind of frustrated. But I said, y'all got 15 minutes. And they showed me a video. And my wife and I just, by God's grace, it uh, took us took me 39 years to graduate with a Master Theological Studies degree. And due to the pandemic nature, the church hadn't celebrated that, which was fine. I'm, and uh, it really it hadn't been celebrated, uh, but that was I, I had no qualms about that. I'm not necessarily a big celebratory guy in the first place. But they showed me a film of man of some of these names you would know, others you may not. But uh, they gotten people like uh, Bishop Jakes, yeah, Tony Evans, John Jenkins, yeah. The people they had who recorded a video to celebrate my wife and I. Wow. Just before I came out here today, I was, I was just, I was blown away that okay. hey, they could even reach them folk, let alone get them to respond. To uh just say to me, thanks for the example, job well done. How did you do that in the midst of all the other stuff you do? Uh, but my point is when you spend some time one on one with people, not not just from a, I'm watching Marc's Roller from a pulpit, from an auditorium in Tulsa, from a pulpit in Fort Worth. But it's something about I spent some personal time with all those names I called and I could have called others who were on there. That's a whole different, uh, in depth knowledge of that person. That's cornelia, which is depth fellowship, not just fellowship, but depth fellowship. And and the Bible in Acts 2.42 said that was one of the central characteristics of the early church. So the reset, I think, may involve koinonia. It may involve discipleship and valuing it stronger than we value the crowds. All of us who built these churches that could see 500, 1,000, 1,800, 3,000, I'm not saying they won't be filled again, but I think some of us were satisfied with, with a crowd but what we what were not what we were not having was sometime christ in a in a more in-depth way with that crowd and a crowd without christ is a mob Yeah, yeah. and so that's just a little bit i think that what we might see in this reset uh, of the church post-pandemic i'll say this and i'll be quiet and i know you got Oh, no, you're fine. Uh, a few years ago, maybe more like seven, eight, or ten, less than ten, but uh, I was uh, in a hotel in Dallas with my wife. Uh, we were having something with our church, and we were celebrating. We spent the night over there. So I took a break from all the activity. It was some kind of marriage retreat weekend or something. I can't remember exactly. Some conference with a 100 or so people from our church. When I went in to take a break, I turned on CNN and the news reporter announced that uh, the vast majority of Christians cannot, could not name the 12 disciples. Some reports, some, report, some uh, study had been done and said Christians could name the 12 disciples. And I thought to myself, that can't be true. You know, I've been to Sunday school like many folk all my life and vacation Bible school and what they call Baptist training union. By this time, I did have an undergraduate degree in Christian studies. Uh, I was toward a master's. I got to know the name of the 12 disciples. So I got up out of the bed and took the ink pen and pad and wrote down 12 names, knowing that those would be the 12 disciples. And I knew where they were found in the Bible, I think in Matthew 10 2 or so, and Acts 1 13, uh, Luke 3. I knew where they were named but I wrote them down. Then I opened the Bible to see how did my list compare with where they were named in the Bible. I only got seven of the 12 right. And I thought to myself, if I'm the pastor and been studying the Bible all my life, if I only got seven of the 12 right, I bet you my congregation would probably get less than that correct. And I spent about a month studying the disciples. Fascinating study. Ephesians 2 Twitter says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So not knowing the names and stories and ministries and activities of the 12 is like not knowing your brothers and sisters' name, your parents' name, your grand The foundation, your... Uh, Marcherona fully is aware of his Italian background and connections and how that impacts his personality, no doubt his his uh, dietary habits. So I went on and on and on. He knows his foundation, but when you don't know, and so that Sunday, we were running about 700, people in the early service, maybe about 1,200 in the late service at the time. When I preached the first sermon on this, I asked the crowd before I preached it. Again, we're talking about 700 people. How many of you here can name the 12 disciples? All twelve. Only two people out of seven hundred. One was a uh, on my staff. He's graduated Fuller Seminary in um, Pasadena, California. He has a second master's from Southwestern Seminary, where I recently graduated from. Uh, he he passed it in the Caribbean, and he, the only reason he knew that twelve names though he learned a, a little a, uh, with the melody, uh, yeah. the names of the twelve through a song growing up as a kid. And he got up and literally sang a song that contained the name of all 12 disciples. And there was a fifth grade girl in the church who had actually memorized the name of the 12. Other than that, nobody could name them. In the second service, again, a little bit larger crowd, of maybe 1,000 to 1,200 in the second service, and no one could name all 12 disciples. Now look at the biblical illiteracy from the pulpit to the back door. I'm talking about So pre-pandemic, we're biblically literate. I'm hoping the disruption that lead to a reset will somehow give us a. Hung- I catch myself reading more. Will give us a hunger more for the Scripture. We will become biblically literate. And as I try to stop talking, I just pull out two or three juicy morsels I learned about those disciples that actually blew me away. Uh, number one, the law first mentioned. I may have, learned that from you some preacher i've listened to a little bit on and off across the years have you talked about the importance of the law first mentioned in any scripture time. yeah i think you maybe we've been one of the very first people i ever heard talk about that principle and then bishop of Alban has been another one um where was the word disciple first mentioned in the bible to understand the meaning of any word you need to understand it The first time it was ever mentioned and what did it mean out of that context? Because every other shade of meaning or application sort of found its roots in the very first time. So my assumption was the word disciple would be first mentioned in the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know. And was I shocked, Isaiah 816. The first time the word disciple is mentioned is in the Old Testament. And the first somebody who mentioned it was God Himself, <laughs> and God saying, "My my people shall be known as disciples." I was. That was the identity. You go to Acts, what is eleven twenty six, and the disciples were first called oh, Christians Christian. in Amen. Antioch, and how that word disciple is mentioned over 250 times in the new testament the primary identity of the believer uh, they were called Christians. that was the identity that god or jesus gave to those who follow him that was the people of antioch the non-christians who assigned this appellation this term christians to the followers of jesus uh, matter of fact, in Matthew 13, that parable of the household, Jesus said, When you understand these first seven parables, the eighth parable in Matthew 13 is the parable of the household. He said, Now you are disciples of students of the kingdom of God. Which meant that the, the bar for being a disciple is really greater than the bar of being a Christian. I know there's a sense in which we can use these terms synonymously. But there are are, are radical distinctions in many ways as well. And and the big point I'm trying to make is I don't believe the church understands our identity. My, my. Because if we fully understand our identity, the George Floyd situation, which was your your starting point of this question, uh, the church this was the first time in history, I think, white evangelicals got in the street and marched and protested. Yeah, it was greater than the black church in in African americans period. In my city, there were two thousand people marching. Maybe two hundred were African Americans. The other eighteen hundred were from Fielder Road Baptist Church, Lake Arlington Baptist Church, First Baptist Church of. All it done. I Our city doesn't come to think of it, really have a, a very large, what you would call a charismatic church. You might want to send somebody here. Uh, <laughs> but all of the Baptist churches, the, the, the mainline churches participate, and I'm looking at this going, whoa, I have never seen this happen. Now the point, why did it take that knee on the neck to wake up all the churches, and, 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 and we fight social injustice together. But God's people, his disciples, came together across racial yes. lines. What if we were already together before the knee on the neck? Jesus help us. It could, pre- it could prevent some of that. And finally, back to the of hand, Mrs. Criswell, the wife of w. A. Dr. W.A. Criswell. Criswell, she had a radio program here every Sunday. It's interesting, they did not believe in a woman preacher, so to speak, but she had a Sunday school classes with 600 people, co-ed, every Sunday, and some of the most influential Dallas people in Dallas attended a class, and it was a radio class anybody could listen to, so I I, I said, that's ironic, yeah. you got a woman teaching me, and right there at First Baptist Dallas, though, supposedly, they don't believe that. And, um, but a friend of mine called me one right day and says, Dwight... Mrs. Criswell said over the radio this morning that uh, Africans descended from Ham and Ham was cursed and Africans were cursed. This was in the mid 90s. I said, You got to be kidding me. I knew he had said that many years ago and a lot of controversy around it. I, I went and bought the tape because I didn't want to take his word for it. And she she was preaching, uh, teaching on the uh, covenants of the Bible. She mentioned the Noah Co- Covenant, N O A H I C. She had an Adamic covenant, She about 10 11 different covenants she mentioned in the Bible. But under the, the covenant of Noah, she said that the Africans were cursed under their covenant. And she went on. She didn't belabor the point. She went on. But I thought, if you've got chief of police in your church, people are over human resources, again, some of the most influential people in Dallas in the class, and they hear that Africans are cursed, if I'm a policeman or woman and I pull you over the next day for running a stop sign, but the day before I was in Sunday school and the teacher yeah. said this person is cursed, that can't help but have an impact how you relate oh, to them. absolutely! If I'm a human resources officer and two people of the same qualifications apply for a job, good credit, maybe good, graduated from good schools, good work experience, well, one is black, the other is white. But if my Sunday school teacher told me the Africans were cursed, well, I want to hide one that's not cursed. Um, so that theology is still in certain ways impacting. If we all value people the same, I won't stick my knee on uh Marciana's neck, he won't put his knee on my neck. If I have to rest, macherona I have to rest him and I'm going to get, get my job done. Machirona have to rest me. He, he can do it, get his job done. But I think there's a way we could do it without it happening like we saw. But I think that was one of the disruptions that's going to lead to a reset. And I think the post pandemic church will be much more disciple making driven and oriented than the pre-pandemic church. All right, thank you for being patient. Uh, you, you have um, said a mouthful.
0: And um, in listening to you, um, I just deeply appreciate the depth of the well of the wisdom that you have and the way in which you convey a profound amount of hope in the midst of a season where there's a lot of despair. Uh, you do remind me, Pastor Dwight, of the late E.V. Hill in, in the way you carry yourself. And I counted him a, a dear friend. Um, but I, I'm grateful for your voice. And uh, I I know that the people that are listening in are going to be grateful for all that you shared. Can you talk a little bit about your books and let them know where they can get them?
1: Oh, I, I only have, I guess, three to four. Uh, They're all powerful. Don't apologize for them. They're all great books. <laughs> uh, Amazon would carry most of them except one. one. Uh, the one you re- referred to, Beyond Roots, the initial book. Uh, there can be uh, access through my office or through Amazon and that book had one major objective, really, to respond to a book Elijah Muhammad wrote in '65, uh, called "Message to the Black Man." And in that book, he says, "Do not tell me you have unity and peace in the white racist religion called Christianity." He said, "Islam is the natural religion of the black man." So I wrote beyond Lu's book again to address that whole nation of Islam apologetic sort of growing out of the prison system, but it did interface with a lot of other uh, important biblical subject matters. then I wrote a Beyond Roots Two. I co-authored that with Dr. Tony Evans. If anybody asks you who I am, and the major objective in that book, uh, the sequel, was to plunge the depths uh, from the first book, but also respond to People like in the Dake's Bible, I have one or two copies, uh, sort of one of the earliest study Bibles that was primarily read by Pentecostal believers. But in the introduction of that book, it talks about, a lot of people overlook this, that it said, everybody in the Bible is white. Yeah. And Dake's Bible, and uh, uh, Schofield, who was sort of the father of somewhat of cessationism and fundamentalism, he produced the Bible also uh, saying that people from Ham, Africans, were cursed. Uh, assigned to servitude and, and cursed. So it was to correct. Uh, we identified a lot of historians and scholars and ethnologists who had said some very demeaning and untrue things about Black people. Got a on that. Uh, Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, Harry Einstein, one of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary referred to that Ethiopian as being ignorant, a poor ignorant and unlearned man. Uh, Dallas touts itself on being uh, orthodox and biblical and heritage and teaching the Bible accurately, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that text suggests that the Ethiopian eunuch was a man of great authority under Kandaki, Candace, queen of the Ethiopia. He was probably the uh, Secretary of Treasurer or the Chancellor of Minister of Finance. He was uh, riding in a chariot, which suggested something about his wealth. and probably a gold-plated chariot, according to J. Vernon McGee, because gold was so plentiful in Ethiopia. Uh, while he was, the Bible doesn't say he was uh, driving a chariot. It says while riding in a chariot. It was a chauffeur-driven chariot the reason I know that he commanded that the chariot stand still. He did not give a command to the horse, he gave the command to the driver. Uh, When he commanded the chariot to stand still. And Philip, uh, one of the Greek speaking persons in the early church uh, was by the wayside because the angel of the Lord had told him to go to Gaza, right there between Africa and uh, Southern Israel. And uh, Philip obeyed. He had preached a thousand in Samaria but when the Holy Ghost told him to go to Gaza, he, he was there. And then here comes this African riding in a chair. And he, he was holding the Book of Isaiah, the Scroll of Isaiah, in his hand. So it's hard to read and drive a chariot at the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But he was reading. From the, yeah. But And Philip heard him reading and asked him, understand this, what thou readest? He said, how can I accept some man guide me? And it was a roomy chariot because the Ethiopian invited Philip into the chariot and they rode together and uh, so here's my point so here but here's a biblical exegete Harry Isai said this man was ignorant well you're reading from the Septuagint a Greek bible as you know the Greek translation of the Old Testament you're not ignorant you were not poor you were riding in a chariot you were uh, the manager of treasure the of the treasure of your country. Usually, when you assign to manage other people's money, you've proven a certain capacity to manage your own. Uh, so he was not ignorant, he was not uh, poor. But so my whole point is is how other people can it's called eiseges as opposed to exegesis. exegesis. Yeah. But convince people that that's that's a subtle way of teaching racism. Without directly saying, "I hate black people" or they they don't have they, they are less valuable, but you you're projecting that. So the second book, Beyond Roots, Two, identify a lot of quotes like that from people. We uh, footnoted where you can find exact page. Make sure we're not taking them out of context. Uh, John Arthur even, who uh, in a Christmas sermon, "The Miracle of Christmas," I think his name of the book. He identifies Jesus as having pink feet the little baby jesus wow in the middle east uh born with even if he was just totally jewish olive skin colored or arabic Uh, how do you get pink feet from jesus i don't know but again that's that's a subtle way of saying those with the pinkish caucasian complexion right you just made jesus uh Caucasian, I believe Jesus was a mestizo person of mixed ancestry, Yeah. Uh, maybe with the blood of all races like that an argument could be made of Hamitic, uh, Semitic, and even uh, perhaps Japhetic blood. Uh, if you could prove Jesus was white, the nation of Islam proved people were rejecting so on that basis. If you could prove Jesus was absolutely looked like uh, the, the darkest African with the king's and the biggest nose and the thickest lip. You got a whole bunch of people who reject Jesus so on the basis that you could prove he was a, 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 a traditional African. But by Jesus having a, a, a mixture of races in his background, again, Hamidic, uh ladies and uh, Semitic people who had intermixed with some coastal, European, and J. Japhetic people. Uh, then Jesus. Who knows? He could have looked like Anwar Sadat, Barack Obama, or we don't know for sure. But all races should be able to find themselves in Jesus. But this goes back to uh, my the the book that sort of deals with all of those issues. It just goes a lot more in depth, and then I'm. Have a third book uh, called um, uh, what is that? Conversations. In, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here now. On the name, but it's it's a powerful book. It deals with some it's, Jewish. Isn't it with you and Kenneth Elmer? Uh, no, um, I, I may have quoted a reference Kenneth Elmer. I think in, in, in two of my books, and uh, but. Um, man let me see if i have a copy of that book laying around here it deals with the did with a, a, a i put too much in that book i got five chapters on africa and jewish relationships i got to do a lot with the southern Baptists and the whole tongues issue um or was I it deal, with tony evans was it the one with
0: tony evans oh, I, I did beyond
1: loose too. that was with tony yeah.
0: evans yeah
1: and uh i was on a zoom with kenneth though not too not too long ago okay and uh but, uh, yeah, but that book is on Amazon, Contemporary Conversations. I'm drawing, I'm drawing blanks right now. And I was supposed to be at church in my office, but, uh, again, my family had this video they wanted me to show me, so I ended up being here today, and I don't have that book available. But uh, that book is available. And then Cont- I wrote a controversial book called... Conversations. That's it. Controversial, controversial Conversations. Conversation. That book is available on Amazon, and it's available out of my office as well. And finally, I did a book called Moving from Fear to Faith, where at that time, my eight-year-old son, who's 41 now, got miraculously healed from cancer. And you're talking about a, a Baptist become a charismatic real quick if your child <laughs> get cancer. At that point, you don't want one of them Baptist prayers, of God, if it be your will. You want to anoint him with all You want somebody to take authority over that sickness. Yeah. And I watched God miraculously heal myself. On the second surgery, when they went in to cut out all the cancer, they couldn't find uh an my, house. My, my, and that was and he went on to get a football scholarship, high school, uh football star college. Uh God miraculously healed him. And I wrote a book about that experience, the causes and cures of sickness. Uh, but it's not that one is not available uh on on Amazon. That was something I self-published years ago, and we got a few copies at the church. I probably need to bring that back in my production, but those are the four books. I have uh written because that was the first time we anointed with oil in our church and everybody lined up and 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 we were mainly praying for my son, but we pray for everybody and we watch God do a miracle. Hallelujah. Those are the four books. I'm glad we're talking today. I want to bring that book back. Yeah, you do. And finally, um
0: again, you're a prince of preachers. If people want to just listen to some of your sermons, do they go to the Cornerstone Baptist website or they go to YouTube? Where do
1: they go? Yeah, I think, see, I'm not into technology, but my people, <laughs> I think they, they have a place on there where I they can go. promise you're on listen. the web. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's out there. I think go to the so, Cornerstone so if website. They, if they go to your there. church,
0: they go to Cornerstone Baptist Church there in Arlington because you've got a website for
1: for people. Yes, yes,
0: yes. Um, they can see you. Yeah. Well, Pastor, it has been a delight and an honor. You have enriched us. You've blessed us. I so appreciate who you are and just value um, your kinship in Jesus. Oh.